Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I feel very undeserving of such a great compliment. And uh, my wife and I, Mary Lynn, we're uh, super blessed to be in the Warrens' lives and in the Goebbels' lives. So this is just great being here. I am so excited. Are you guys excited and, and awake today? Ready to go? All right. I got a little Diet Mountain Dew over there. If anybody needs a swig, you come on up. I know for a lot of the leaders, it's been a busy weekend, um, but wow, I mean, my wife and I are just really blown away by the city. We're really loving this. Thank you for your hospitality. We got to see the campus and walk around and see those beautiful lakes, and we got to walk on State Street and go out to eat and just see this city, and it is amazing and really beautiful. And uh, we really love what's happening here in Doxa and just all the cool things that God is doing through your life. So thank you for this great privilege to be here. I'm really excited to share with you out of Luke chapter 3, even though we're going to be reading a genealogy today, okay, which on the surface you think, okay, this could be my nap time while he reads all these names. There's actually some amazing stories and amazing things uh, that are built into this that really can speak to our own lives. And so I'm excited about sharing this with you as we talk about Luke and uh, the good news for all people. We're going to kind of unpack this genealogy a little bit and just say, well, how was this good news to the people, especially to the people uh, of the Gentile race that Luke was directing this to, and what did that mean for them? So why don't we pray again and uh, ask God to speak to us and uh, ask him to help me pronounce all these words <laughs> properly. I'm just going to go for it, and, uh, and we'll just see what God teaches us this morning. God, thank you again for that time of worship uh, to just sing those truths, Lord, is, is, is so important to us and so valuable. And uh, Lord, we again just thank you for all that you're doing in this city. It really is beautiful, Lord, and, uh, and I just love the thought of all these people making this bold risk to just be involved in a church plant. And I know that you're smiling upon that and you're so excited about what's happening uh, and every step of the way, Lord, everything we're doing in our lives and in our church and in our families, God, we need you. We need you to be walking alongside with us and, and helping us. Lord, would you speak to our hearts today as we read through uh, Luke chapter 3? Um, Lord, unite uh, our thoughts and our hearts with what your Spirit is doing in our lives to change us and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just this thought before we jump into this of knowing who you are and knowing where you come from is a very fascinating topic. It seems like lately people are really into this Ancestry.com thing, which has been really popular. And I love the tagline of Ancestry.com. It says, your past is waiting to inspire you. I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. When people are kind of looking into their past and think, well, what were my family, what were my parents like and my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents just kind of figuring out like, well, how does that affect who I am and that past affecting me? You know, being kind of just taking a look at me here as you see me, people ask me what my background is a lot. They ask me what my nationality is a lot. And I'm very proud of my heritage, but I like to hear people guess what they think I am. And usually about their fifth or sixth guess is correct. They start off with like, are you Jewish? Are you Arabic? 
Um, I used to have a goatee when I was a teacher back in the day, and they thought I was Hispanic, and they would just kind of go through all these different things, but I'm actually 100% Italian, and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> love Italian food, love my heritage, love my ancestry. There's only one little part of my ancestry that I'm not that proud of, and my parents kind of don't like to talk about it that much. But all four of my grandparents were born in Italy, so I'm second generation in my ancestry. And one of those grandparents was in Sicily, and they're pretty sure that they were in the mafia. So that's kind of the stories that my parents haven't fully told us all the things that went on there. Maybe I don't want to know my past. Maybe that's not going to inspire me. I don't know. But anyway, people want to know, like, who am I? And how has my family affected me? And that's one of the important parts of what Luke is doing here. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, he's saying, I want you to know exactly who Jesus is. And how all these implications of what he came from plan out who God, uh, who God made him to be and who, uh, what God is doing through him. And so we're going to jump in here and read through. There's 77 names, actually, in this genealogy. And so let's jump right into verse 23, and we'll read through these together. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the son of Neri, the son of Milki, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jerem, the son of Mattith, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikam, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadad, the son of Ram. The son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirig, the son of Reh, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Erphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Shem, the son of Adam, and the son of God. So there is that long list that was quite the mouthful. 
And the first thought that we have when we come to the scriptures like this, we think, okay, Lord, why was this recorded? What was the value of reading through that long list? You know, what are some of the highlights and the insights that we can pull from this? And there are many. I'm only going to pull a few away, but here's really the big idea of what we wanted to share with you this morning, and here it is. Jesus's genealogy shows God's power to carry out his plan through broken people. One of the first things that we're going to pull out of this passage is that God had this plan. When he created mankind and he created Adam and Eve, he had a plan the whole time that led all the way to Jesus, but that plan was filled up in his sovereign way with broken people. And we can be a part of his plan. We can be a part of his mission because God has power. And it's all about glorifying God and it's all about giving him credit that he weaves all this out between the good and the bad that we do. He's sovereignly in control to navigate us to a place that he wants us to be. And so he uses us, he uses these broken people to bring about his plan of salvation for mankind. A couple other quick notes as we look at this is first of all, this is very interesting that at the beginning of this whole Christian endeavor, there were these people called the Gnostics. And if you know anything about the Gnostics, one of the first things that you'll know about them is one of the heresies that they were creating difficulty with in the Christian church was, believe it or not, that Jesus was not human. That Jesus did not have flesh and blood. Now, if we're out there talking to people today and you're sharing the gospel in this city, there'll be many people that you encounter that believe Jesus lived historically, but they don't believe he was God. One of the heresies that they were struggling with early on in the church was not that Jesus wasn't this amazing spirit that did miracles, but they actually believed after he rose and ascended and he was gone and decades were going on, the Gnostics were saying, this man was so great. He was so loving. He was so incredible. And this miraculous thing of the resurrection happened because he didn't have flesh and blood. He wasn't a man. A pretty crazy heresy that the early disciples were trying to wrestle through. So Luke, speaking to this, you know, including in this Gnostic heresy, he's saying, we want to be very clear with you. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And here is his genealogy. He really was born. And he's speaking to the Gnostics to uh, push back on this untruth that they were trying to share. Hebrews 4.15 enforces this for us. Just one of many talking about his, his human life. For we do not have a high priest referring to Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. And Hebrews talks about this humanity of Jesus, that he went through the same things that we went through. And as I just mentioned, another point of this genealogy that we just read is Jesus's divinity, that Jesus was the coming Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the one that all these Old Testament people were looking forward to. They called him the anointed one or the Messiah, that God had this plan and even though uh, mankind was constantly trying to take us away from that plan, that Jesus was the salvation. 
He was the one that all this genealogy was leading toward. And even very on in the beginning of it, it says when he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. What this is really referring to is that, of course, he was adopted by Joseph. He was not the physical heir of Joseph. And this genealogy is actually pointing to Mary's genealogy. And part of this inheritance that Jesus had and part of this promise that was coming through the Old Testament that this Messiah was going to come through this certain genealogy, this one's actually referring to Mary's genealogy. And her father, whose name was Eli or Heli, and the one that's in Matthew is actually referring to Joseph's genealogy. So this points us to the virgin birth, and it points to the divinity that God had because of the virgin birth and what we call the incarnation. Colossians 1.15 says that so, so clearly, that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This image, this icon that Jesus was, it's an actual exact representation of who God was. One of the cool little conversations that Jesus was having with his disciples after they were seeing him do all these miraculous things and raise people from the dead. And they're like, wow, this guy's even more than a prophet. Jesus, this is amazing, everything that you're doing. Show us who the Father is. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have you been with me this long and you don't know who I am? If you see me, you see the Father, which is an incredibly bold statement for a person to say, referring to his divinity, that he was the great I am. And if we see Jesus' life, we see this exact image of who God is. And this genealogy points us to that again. So we see in this, this phrase at the end of the genealogy, the son of Adam and the son of God, we see this dual amazing paradox that is at the central focus of our Christian faith, that Jesus was fully man and Jesus was fully God. And that is how he was able to be our salvation, to bring us redemption and reconcile us to God. But you know, sometimes we we get off track even believing that God wants to save us so that God wants to redeem us. And this genealogy speaks to that too. So let's jump into a, a couple more points that I want to share. Is number one, as I mentioned at the beginning, this genealogy gives hope to us that when we feel like we've fallen short or we feel broken. And the first point is that broken people are in God's mission. Broken people in God's mission. When I was a, a young boy, I really believed that God was drawing me from a young age. I had this very intense spiritual curiosity. My mom even said as she raised her six boys, she said, you were kind of different in this way that there was this spirituality about you. But I grew up in a traditional church that really didn't share the gospel, or if they did, I didn't really understand what they were saying. And so I was just kind of off trying to pursue this weird holiness that I didn't understand. And I remember little things like going to bed as a child and, and, and pulling out my little Gideon's Bible and, and just trying to read. And I didn't even know what I was reading, but I thought if I just put my eyes across this page, God will bless me. 
And I remember laying in bed and I would like fold the covers perfectly across my body and hold my hands in a certain way, just trying to kind of figure out this spirituality thing. And my mom came in one, day, one night and was just kind of surprised. She said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just trying to seek God. You know, but I didn't even know what that meant. And as the years went on, I really went off the path. And I really got into drinking and partying and immorality and just gave myself to the world all through high school. And the way I treated people was, was really ungodly. And I didn't know God and I didn't have God. But as much as I went off track and just pursued the world, I still had this desire of this holiness. So I would be an altar boy and I would try to do church things while on the other side I was not living according to what God had for me. And really most of my young life before I was 18, I remember just living a dual life and living like a chameleon. Whoever I was around, that's how I acted. But I still had this spiritual part of me. And when you live a dual life like that, often it just brings shame. And it brings guilt into your life. And that's really what I experienced. I had these desires to live with God and these desires to live with the world. And all it did is just racked me with guilt and shame. And when I went to college, I heard this amazing good news that even though I had done all these really dumb things, things that I was so ashamed of, and in my mind I thought, I can't be holy. I can't walk with God because I've already done all these horrible things. Surely I can't be a part of what God has planned for me because I've already messed it up. And I heard that amazing news that God wanted to save broken people. And he wanted to take the sin and he wanted to erase it. And he wanted to re-navigate it into a direction for him. I was so filled with hope. And when I asked Jesus into my life, and I read in the scriptures that my sins were forgiven, it was such an amazing privilege and an amazing life-changing opportunity to know that I could still walk in God's plan. And that's really what a lot of this genealogy is about. I want to share a story from Luke chapter 3 that I just read in verses 33 and 34. We get, can just skim by these names so quickly. And here's this little section that says it's about the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. Maybe we've heard those names of Abraham and his son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter also. But Jacob's 12 sons, we say, came uh, and developed the 12 tribes of Jacob. And one of Jacob's sons, his name was Judah. And we see this here in this lineage of, of God, this lineage bringing us to Jesus, this story of Judah and his son Perez. And again, we can just scooch right past this, but if we go back to Genesis 38, we find out more of what's going on in these people's lives. Because we could look at them and say, they're in the Bible, these are amazing people. I'm not like them, they're so together, they're so holy. What does this have to do with me? Well, here's what happened with Judah and his daughter-in-law, whose name was Tamar. 
Judah's daughter-in-law Tamar was widowed. She had a very difficult life. And in that time, if you were not married and you didn't have part of this inheritance of the family and you didn't have this man to take care of you, it was a very difficult life. It was a fragile life. And Tamar went to her father-in-law Judah and said, please let me marry another one of your sons. And in their Jewish custom, that was important for Judah to say yes to her. And he said no, because he didn't want another son to die. And they had some superstitions going on. And she begged him, Judah, please let me marry uh, one of your sons. And he said no. So Tamar began to plot how to take care of herself. She plotted and manipulated how to take care of her well-being. And she did something really crazy. She knew that Judah was going on this trip. And so she snuck off away from the family and she went to the town where Judah was coming and she dressed herself like a prostitute. And when Judah approached Tamar, he did not know who she was and she started to seduce him. And he said to her, yeah, let's go sleep together. And she says, what will you give me as a payment? He said, I'll give you a goat. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going to need a couple of the articles that you have and your staff and some things to hold on to until you bring me this goat. And he went and he slept with Tamar and she became pregnant. Months later, he finds out that this woman never even existed. He goes back to give her the goat and so no, one's, no one knows who she is. And a few months after that, when they see that she's pregnant, they bring her out to punish her. And they said, look at what this woman has done. And they're getting ready to kill her. And Judah's upset with her. He's upset with his daughter-in-law because she's pregnant. And she says, the father of my baby is the one that owns these things. And he, she pulls out Judah's possessions. And he is broken. He's so sorry. He's so embarrassed. And he says, wow, I have wronged this woman so deeply. She is more righteous than me. And this woman that was about to uh, be stoned for her own manipulation, he, he lives, he lets her live. And her son, she gave birth to twins. The oldest twin's name was Perez. This son, Perez, that was born in this radical way, this manipulative way, out of all of this dysfunction of this family, is part of the lineage of Jesus. It repeats it again in Matthew chapter 1, verses 3. Just in case we forget who Tamar was, Judah, the father of Perez and Zara, those are the twins, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. You see, God is all about being in the business of restoring dysfunction. And to have this sense of God's incredible sovereignty in our life, that he can take these dysfunctional things, he can take these bad things. It's one of the things that I love about the scriptures so much is it is not sugar-coated at all about mankind and these holy people. It's kind of this R-rated view of what really did happen 
and why we need to glorify God and praise God because he's created these people that he loves, but they're broken and they're messed up. And I can relate to that at times when I feel so broken and I feel messed up and I feel like the hope is coming out of me because my eyes are on myself. And these stories remind us, look at Genesis 38 of what these people did. Look at all these other stories and these genealogies of these broken people. Noah, that was a drunk, and all these other people that were selfish and immoral, and they made all these mistakes, but God still loved them, and God wanted to rebuild something beautiful. And you know, I just want to take a moment and just and, and include you in on that and, and have you think about your own life for a moment. You know, everything that you're doing here and just this church plant is just so amazing. I, I hope you know that. You probably know that, but maybe for some of you, you don't know what an incredible step of faith that you're taking. And God is so pleased with that, that act of faith. My wife and I helped plant a church six years ago in Toledo, Ohio, and I know what it's like to just step out and have doubts and, and think, gosh, how is this all going to work? And just putting yourself out there on the limb. And, and it's a very heroic thing that you're doing to bring this good news to this city. And I know that when Mary Lynn and I were planting that church, man, the doubts just rushed in on my own life like things that we're talking about right now. Because I think as Christians, we can magnify our own sin. We can magnify our shortcomings. And we can sit there when, when we're not at church and we don't have our smile on and our face on and our, our, our presence and our confidence and we're all alone. We could think, I'm too broken to do anything for God. And we magnify our sins and we, we, we think our little steps of faith aren't going to amount to much. That's part of our story. And what I just love about God so much is he said, no, I can erase your mistakes. I want to change that dysfunction. I want to love on you and erase those things. And I want to take your steps of faith and magnify them. So hear that today, that we all want to exaggerate our weakness and diminish our steps of faith, and God wants to do just the opposite. He wants to erase your mistakes and magnify your faith. And I believe with all my heart that all your steps of faith right now that you're doing, all the difficult things of a church plant, and you just being here, just being here, and, and, and for many of you, moving to a new place, and, and getting new jobs and starting these new relationships and thinking, how could I be a part of a church plant and stepping into new ministries? God can use that. Did Tamar or Judah or any of these people have any idea how God would use their lives for his good? It's an amazing thing. He's such a redeemer. Which brings us to our our second point that I want to bring out is this kinsman redeemer of who God is and what he's all about. What he, he's in the business of redeeming things. And one of the things that I love about the Old Testament is we get all these pictures in the Old Testament of who Jesus was going to be. They're called prophetic things. They're called foreshadowings. 
And we have these different Christ figures in the Old Testament that the Jewish people could read, and it gave them a clearer picture so that when Messiah comes, they would know who he was. Because many false prophets would come. They'd say, look at all these foreshadowings. Look at these little hints all through the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus was going to be like. And we get one of those in this genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 32. It talks about the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon. Now, Boaz was something in the Old Testament actually called a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is a very clear picture of Christ. He's a foreshadowing, a little glimpse into what Christ would be like. And in this story with Boaz, there's this beautiful story that you can read in the book of Ruth. Ruth was also widowed. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, was also widowed. And here's this beautiful story of these two women wandering through life without much hope, Poor, homeless, in a very difficult place, lost. And Naomi says to Ruth in this book, you can read that as a beautiful story. Naomi says, man, you got to take care of yourself, Ruth. Go back to your town, Moab. Maybe you can find a husband. Maybe you've got some hope. And in this beautiful verse, she says to Naomi, no, wherever you go, I go. Your people, the Jewish people, are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I want to die with you. It's so beautiful. Ruth says, I don't care about my own well-being. I want to be with you, and I want to be with your God. And Naomi says, okay, let's go back to my town, to Bethlehem. And they don't know where God's leading them or what God's going to do or how they're going to be provided for. And long story short, they meet Boaz. And Boaz is this kinsman redeemer and he falls in love with Ruth, and he marries her. And through that relationship, God is glorified because now Naomi and Ruth, who were lost and homeless and in trouble, Boaz brings them in. He gives them this amazing inheritance. He provides for them, and he takes care of them, and they are just sheltered, and it's a beautiful life. And Naomi's praising God, and Ruth is praising God, and they have a son together. And his name is Obed. Ruth's faith led her to Boaz. And Boaz's redeeming nature, redeeming heart, helped them. And together, they have the son Obed, who is a part of this genealogy that would later lead to the Messiah, Jesus. What a great story! Boaz was that kinsman redeemer for Ruth and was this foreshadowing for Jesus. And I love these kind of stories because my wife and I, you know, we kind of have a, a heart for that. I'd say my wife even more so. She loves taking something and making it beautiful. She likes fixing up houses and fixing up things and redeeming things. And, and, and we've always had a heart for those that might not be cared for. And I was so thankful that when we were dating, even before we were engaged, my wife and I, we've been married 18 years now, we had both had this heart for adoption. And uh, it was really cool as we were just kind of doing our premarital counseling. It's like, man, you know, I think I'd really like to adopt someday. And she's like, man, I have always wanted to adopt. 
There's all these children out there that just need love and they need help and they're coming out of these bad situations and they need to be redeemed. I was like, wow, this is cool. Okay, great. We'll just see what God does with that. When we got married and a few years later, we began to try to have children and we struggled with infertility for a while, for years. And I was always so impressed that I know that that can be a really difficult time, and that makes total sense. It could be a very heartbreaking time for a mom who wants to give birth and nothing's happening. But I was always so thankful. My wife was just so content the whole time. She didn't seem to get discouraged much. I was like, wow, your, your, your response is surprising me. And she said, you know, I just wonder. I, I think that God got, knows this desire in us, and he wants us to adopt. It's like, okay, awesome. Let's go for it. And we met my, my first son, my oldest son. Here's a picture of him, uh, my, our whole family. And my oldest, who's 17, he was in a really rough situation when he was three years old. And we adopted him. And it was an amazing process. When the judge hit that little gavel on the, on the, on the, on the table and he said, this is your son. We we're like so excited. And it's been such a, a blessing and a privilege to redeem him out of that situation and to love on him and encourage him. And I was like, you know what? I really want a daughter too. Let's, let's go through the adoption process and adopt a daughter. And we adopted my, my middle daughter, who is now taller than me, at 12 years old. And, uh, and we got to adopt her too. And it was so cool. And we're just praising God and, and so thankful and again, we're kind of just, you know, you're busy with kids and you're thankful and you just kind of, your, your desire for biological children just kind of goes away and you're like, okay, this is, this is cool. We're happy. Six weeks later, after we adopted my daughter on Christmas day, my wife comes out of the bathroom sick and she's got this little piece of plastic in her hand and she says, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? She says, I'm pregnant. I said, you're right. I don't believe you. <laughs> Are you joking? She's like, no, this is for real. You know, this is like seven or eight years later. I was like, wow, Christmas Day. What a gift. So we got number three, my blonde, blue-eyed, biological son, okay? I'm 100% Italian. How does this work? Those German genes took over. And so it's fun having this family when people see them and they see my color and Maryland, they're not sure who's adopted, who's not. You know, sometimes they ask these very unpolitically correct questions like, hey, which one of those are yours? I'm like, they're all mine. What are you talking about? You mean which ones are adopted or which ones are biological? I'm pretty sure they're all mine. When we go through McDonald's, you know, the drive-thru, I, I got to buy three Happy Meals. They're all mine. One of my fears when we got pregnant, believe it or not, I had all this crazy fear come in. What if I loved my youngest more than my adopted two? That came to my mind a lot for like nine months. And he came, and these years that have passed now, 11 years, I can truly say, I love them all so deeply. And I forget that they're adopted. I really do. I don't think of my three children in different ways, but I think of them as mine. And when people say, which one of them are yours? 
I'm so confused. It takes me a few seconds like, what are you talking about? They're mine. And when God comes in and redeems you into this family, how much more of a feeling does God have this for you that you are his? He has you. And when you place your faith in Jesus and you say, yeah, I want to follow you. I want you to come into my life. We all get grafted into this family and this inheritance and this redeemed state that's just so beautiful. And these Gentile people that were mostly this audience in the book of Luke needed to hear that so deeply because some of the Jewish people didn't understand that. And the Jewish people said, no, we're the chosen ones. We're the special ones. And these Gentile people were beginning to follow Christ. And they're like, yeah, but are we a part of this? And these people are saying we need to go through all these hoops to be really a part of God's family. And Luke writes this whole book to them and says, no, this is for everyone. This is for you, the Gentile people too. You thought you were far off, but you are grafted in also. And I'm sure it warmed their heart. I'm sure that it encouraged them. And so as we close, this invitation is for all. Again, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, um, yeah, I've, I've heard all this. But sometimes it just hasn't really sunk into our hearts that, that we've been invited into something so special, God's family. And for you to be into that family was made possible by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And when he died and he rose again, he gave that opportunity for you to respond to that invitation. But know for sure this genealogy going all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham, but back to Adam, is a word to you and I that you're invited. He loves all of mankind and he wants you to be a part of it. You know, I, I think about the times I was, as I was praying through this message, I was like, God, when have I felt uninvited? When, when have I felt unincluded? And I was remembering times where I played basketball. I love basketball. I love sports. And there were a couple times in life when I remember being in Columbus and I would go down to the, the urban areas where these courts were and all these basketball players were phenomenal. And I really wanted to be a part of it. And I'd try to practice and get better and better at playing so that I could be in it. And sometimes you'd go down for these pickup games and every once in a while when I wasn't doing very well or I was a little out of shape and there were 12 guys there okay? And everybody's shooting around. They'd pick a couple captains that everybody respected and everybody knew, and they would start picking their teams. And I would just start getting this sinking feeling like, oh no, I might not get picked. And they're going through one, two, three, all the way down. And a couple times, I remember the 10th guy, and I wasn't invited. I was like, ugh. I remember that feeling. It still happens, even in even the last few years when I play at the YMCA, and there's guys gathered, and I'm kind of counting the guys as they come into the gym, and when there's 11, 12, 13 guys, I think, oh man, I might not be picked. And they get their 10 for the five on five, and you go sit on the bench, 
and you've got next game. And as you sit through that game, you're just like, man, I wish I was in. And you can feel discouraged. You know what that's like if you can picture that in your mind when you're not invited in. And that's how these Gentile people were feeling. But I also remember those times when I did get a little better and you get picked. Or sometimes you're in a group and it's so special, they actually pick you first. And that's when you're like at the top of the mountain, you know? You see the two guys there and they're like, hey, party, you be on my team. And your heart is just overwhelmed like, yes, I want to be in. And that is the feeling that Jesus wants you to have when he looks at you and he says, I pick you. I want you. Respond to my invitation because I love you and you're special and I want you to be on my team. That's what he's all about. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And if at any part of your life, any portion of your life that you're like, man, I've got this lostness, I've got this brokenness, and I don't know if I'm included in. You can know this morning that he's wanting you. He's picking you. He loves you. He's passionate about you, no matter what's happened in your life. And he's wanting to include you in that, and he hopes that you will respond. Let's pray that we do respond to that and just thank him for including us in in that family tree. Lord, as we read through all these names and all these stories, Lord, I'm so moved and so blessed that you want to include our name in that story. And God, we can look at these people. Some of them were spiritual heroes and some of them failed in incredible ways. And Lord, some people could be filled with pride and others could be filled with shame. And you come and you break all of that down for us and you say, I love you because of who I am. God, you love us not on our performance and all these other things that we've done, but you love us because you are so gracious and you wanted to show your mercy to mankind. So God, as we uh, sing these songs, Lord, we pray that we would uh, enter into that. Lord, we'd be so grateful that you're our kinsman redeemer and uh, you are in the business of taking lost things and finding them, taking things that are hurting and healing us. So Lord, we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.